Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Zan Raza, and today I'm going to be talking about U.S. foreign policy with a guest who has a long history as an insider with the U.S. government, especially the military sector. Here are a few highlights of his career. Lawrence Brookinson is a retired colonel who served in the U.S. Army for 31 years. During the time in the Army, he was a member of the faculty of U.S. Naval War College from 1987 to 1989. A special assistant general Colonel Powell when he was in the chairman joint chief of staff from 1989 to 1993. The deputy director of the U.S. Marine Corps War College at Quantico, Virginia from 1993 to 1997. And his last position to the U.S. government was as chief of staff to then Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 to 2005. He is now a senior non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Lawrence Wilkerson, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. Let us begin this segment with North Korea. The U.S. and its allies strongly condemn North Korea's recent test of suspected intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs. North Korea has carried out a record number of missile tests this year, and some Western analysts fear that it may be preparing for a nuclear test for the first time since 2016. The Japanese government states that the ICBM could potentially reach the U.S. mainland. How do you assess the situation in the Korean Peninsula? I think what we're seeing is exactly what I told the uh, defense attache in the embassy there recently when he asked me the same question, basically. Kim Jong-un wants attention. And this is a typical behavior when the United States in particular, but the Western world in general, ignores him. And we have been decisively ignoring him in the Biden administration, if you will, and leaving it all up to the commander on the peninsula, the U.S. commander on the peninsula in conjunction with his ROC counterpart, uh, South Korean counterpart. They fire missiles, we fire missiles, they fire missiles, we fire missiles, and it's just tit for tat. And Kim Jong-un doesn't like that. Uh, his predecessor didn't like it, and his predecessor, Kim Il-sung, didn't like that. They want the U.S.'s attention, and they want to talk. Um, and Trump uh, gave them a taste of that even more so than perhaps any president in the past. And so they, they're firing their missiles to try and get attention. Now, it's very dangerous, of course, because any time now, like the one that flew over Japan, suppose you have a malfunction and it actually lands in Japan. It wouldn't do a lot of damage, but it would certainly frighten the Japanese even more than they already are. So we need to start talking. And what we need to start talking about is the same thing we were going to do in the Bush administration in October 2002, when Jim Kelly, Assistant Secretary for East Asian Pacific, traveled to Pyongyang and essentially had in his briefcase an economic package, an economic package that would have given the North Koreans a real boost, which they needed badly. Um, and it would have been guaranteed not just by the United States, but by Russia, China, Japan. Um, it would have been an ironclad guarantee that we wouldn't do anything uh, security-wise that would be in their disinterest, but we'd help them economically. And then all of a sudden, Kang sok Ju and Yi Gun, then the nuclear negotiators for North Korea, said, we have a nuclear weapon. <laughs> and so Secretary Kelly put uh, his package back in his briefcase. Um, we need to do that again. We need to convince the North Koreans, multi-party, convince them that, um, and that's going to be difficult with Russia now, but uh, that, that we're there to help them, not to hurt them, and to help them get their economy uh, uh, straightened out. And as General Powell used to say, Secretary Powell used to say, 
uh, after a couple of years, flooding them with market goods and uh, uh, turning them towards a market economy, much the way China did, uh, it, it, the authoritarian regime will be gone or be nearly gone. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case. It hadn't happened in China, um, but it certainly would be a better North Korea. What receives little condemnation from Western politicians and media is U.S. military drills with South Korea that include simulated strikes on North Korean missile and defense systems. Do these military drills help keep North Korea in check, or do you think they further provoke the situation? Uh, there's, that's a mixed bag, really. If, if you were to start on the kind of diplomacy that I just briefly outlined, you'd have to stop that. Um, you'd stop it. You, you wouldn't have any more exercises other than maybe one every year just to keep the machinery going. Um, and you wouldn't do anything threatening on either side. And that would have to be a sort of pre-agreement to the beginning of negotiations to do what I suggested we should do. Uh, so I, the fundamental answer to that question is it doesn't help anybody to do these sorts of things. But you have to get both sides to stop. Uh, there was back uh, a few years ago a big peace movement in South Korea that wanted um, to de-escalate the situation with North Korea. There were some exchanges on the border. What do you think went wrong uh, following those uh, peace initiatives where there was a lot of hope for peace in the Korean Peninsula and uh, all uh, scale out war? So what do you think would be the right approaches right now? I mean, I know you outlined the economic package, but there's something that the South Koreans could do that could also uh, de-escalate the situation. Yes, and the South Koreans know that. It doesn't matter who's in the government in South Korea, or it hasn't in the past. They know that. Um, the, the problem is the Kim dynasty, in this case, Kim Jong-un, they don't want to talk to South Korea. <laughs> they want to talk to the giant. They want to talk to the superpower. They want to talk to the United States of America. And as, uh, Kim has, and all the three Kims have had this tendency Uh, a strong propensity to denigrate South Korea because recognizing South Korea recognizes South Korea's success as opposed to North Korea's lack of success. And it, it just doesn't sit right with them. Now, if the United States is there holding South Korea's hand, as it were, um, then that's okay. And, and they'll go along with that. But they want to sit down with the big guy. Um, one, They want to sit down with the big guy. And two, they don't want to recognize South Korea in any way that would inflate their ego, as it were. Um, and so that's the problem you've got. Uh, South Koreans would sit down in a heartbeat. Uh, the South Korean business community uh, salivates over the prospect of all that, uh, they think, cheap labor in the North and being able to exploit that for as long as they could until, you know, market forces force wages to rise and so forth. But they see that as a, a, a marvelous future workforce. Uh, so South Korea has every, every interest in normalizing relations with North Korea as long as the security situation is okay. Let us switch our focus to Iran. There was a lot of hope and optimism that President Biden would re-enter into negotiations with Iran and revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, GCPOA. That was, that was agreed during the Obama administration in 2015 but abandoned by Trump. Instead, the U.S. has imposed new sanctions citing Iran's heavy crackdown on anti-government protests and the deteriorating human, human rights situations there. What do you think is really the U.S. concern? Is it human rights or are there other factors at play here behind the sanctions? 
we're getting ready to have a conference out in Salt Lake City at the Baskerville Institute, of which I'm a member. Um, and we're going to talk about this. I hope we're in time to talk about it in a way that might be meaningful because, and here's my main point, what we have going on in Iran right now is a genuine revolution. We haven't seen a revolution like this since 1978, and in 78, 79, of course, Ayatollah Khomeini took it over and consolidated it and made the Islamic Republic out of it. Um, and since, arguably, Mossadegh, when he was prime minister in 53, and then all the way back to the early 1900s, Iran has been trying for a century plus to form a democracy, a, de a democratic state. This is the latest evolution of that with the women in the streets, and I think the government of Iran is in deep trouble. Now, let me hasten to add, if the United States gets involved in a significant sort of way, they will pollute that revolution. So I'm hoping, I'm hearing some really bad things out of Biden's crew right now, that they're going to do this, they're going to do that. And my advice is sit on your hands. Do not do a thing except encourage these women with your rhetoric, your diplomacy. No, don't go in there and contaminate the thing like you've done so many times in the past. These women are serious. 5,000 have died. 56 children have died. Many are in jail. This is a real revolution. Don't ruin it, United States of America. Iran has also increased its enrichment of uranium and use of advanced centrifuges of two nuclear sites, most notably at the Fordow facility. Uh, are these sanctions going to stop Iran from developing? And how do you put uh, that into context with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu coming now uh, revived in Israeli politics? Well, I agree with Gideon Levy at Haaretz that Benjamin Netanyahu and his government now, Ben Gavir in particular, are the greatest motivation on the earth to anti-Semitism. Let me say that again. Bibi Netanyahu is the greatest motivation in the world to anti-Semitism. Even his own people, even Jewish Americans are beginning to detest him. And bringing Ben Gavir in and giving him now real power has just intensified that profoundly. So that's the ingredient, if you will, in this whole business of U.S.-Iran relations that could pollute it instantly and do damage to it. I think the government is going to become so desperate, the Ayatollahs, the IRGC, they're going to become so desperate that they might make a run for a nuclear weapon. At the same time, I don't think we should go ahead negotiating a JCPOA renewal with a government that's shooting women in the streets. That's just not that's not something we should be doing. Um, so this is a very, very dangerous situation right now. It's fraught with optimism because the women are serious. They're not going to stop until they've got what they want. I, at least I don't think if they're willing to go to the streets and face guns and die and go to jail for life, then it's not going to stop. They're going to keep going until they get what they want. Now, Lots of people, including America, can step in and pollute that and, and ruin it. And so can the Ayatollahs if they get desperate, almost like Putin, if he feels like it's existential for him. Um, I, I fear for what he might do. Same with the Ayatollah and the IRGC in particular, because if they feel like it's existential, that their money's going to disappear. The latest reports out of Iran are that less 
then 20% of the GDP of Iran has gone to the people of Iran. The rest of it, over a trillion dollars, has gone to the IRGC and the Ayatollahs and their gangs. So that's how rich these people are getting off this government. So that's when you frighten that, when you scare that, when you threaten that, you, you, you could have almost anything happen, maybe, maybe a fast run to a nuclear weapon, which would just give Netanyahu the willingness to go ahead and attack Iran, feeling the United States would come in with it. So this is a very dangerous situation. It's positive. It's optimistic based on what these women are doing and what they want. But at the same time, into this positive, optimistic situation could flow some real danger. On one hand, you have the United States condemning what's happening in Iran uh, in terms of the state crackdown. But on the other hand, you have the United States um, signing military deals with Gulf monarchies, for example, the Saudi Arabian government, which uh, puts women to jail for just tweeting. This year, they had the biggest public execution. I think over 80 people were executed. Uh, most of them were uh, human rights activists or um, feminists. Uh, or atheists. So how how do people, because you, you've been an insider, how do people that see a human rights situation in one country such as Iran and then they see the same situation and perhaps even worse in Saudi Arabia, how do they come with, the, with grips with this contradiction? Well, I've been alive for 78 years and 50 years have been roughly sentient years and 40 years have been in the U.S. government one way or another. And I can tell you that this is the worst period in that three quarters of a century of inconsistency, of lack of wisdom, of lack of skill in implementing the U.S. security and foreign policy. It is disgusting to watch it happen. It is disgusting to watch the people who are orchestrating it say what they say and do what they do. I've never seen anything this bad, and I've seen some bad times, but I've never seen anything this bad. And where it is worst is where you just described, the Levant, the Middle East. We don't seem to be able to stay consistent on anything. We don't seem to be able to stand up to people to whom we should stand up. We reward people we shouldn't reward. Look at what the Saudis are still doing in Yemen. I mean, and they've been doing it for a decade now, and we've been supporting them with intelligence and weaponry. It's disgusting what we're doing, and I don't know how to fix it because I don't see anybody on the horizon for 2024, for example, who could come in and become the chief executive of this country, the president, and fix these things, do a better job of diplomacy and security and foreign policy. So I'm not looking for any great uh, – I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope someone will come up all of a sudden um, like Athena bursting head, uh, from the head of Zeus – you know, and, and take over the reins of government in this country and turn it around. But I'm not confident that's going to happen. Iran is also providing military support to Russia in, the, in its war against Ukraine with drones. And there's speculative reports that it's also uh, providing missiles to attack Ukrainian cities. Do you see this spilling over to a global conflict, possibly a global World War III? First, let me say that uh, we are such hypocrites to be accusing Iran of doing what we're doing on the other side, which is essentially making money. Um, making money off killing people is what we're doing. The money that's flowing to Ukraine, I, I would guess, just from my previous experience, that 40 to 45, maybe even 50 percent, half of it, 
is going into the hands of people whom I would call war merchants or merchants of debt. It's not going into direct help for Ukraine. We'll wait until we see what happens afterwards when someone tries to audit this some trillion dollars or so. Um, so it's hypocrisy to accuse Iran of doing what exactly we're doing. Uh, and you can say all day long that Putin started the thing and so forth. Still, Iran is making money off of arms, and that's what we're doing. Secondly, I think Iran is going to do this and continue to do it. And I'm really worried about what they might do in Kurdistan, too, in Iraq, in northern Iraq, because they are trying to distract things from the revolution. They're trying to take the people's attention away from the revolution and put it somewhere else. And the best way you do that, it was go abroad and attack somebody or go abroad and do something that looks in their eyes like you're doing the right thing. That's what they're trying to do is distract their own people. And third, if we don't get to diplomacy now, this this is this is a, a period where President Biden does not need to worry about things like the midterms. I can understand how with the midterms coming up, he could not afford with the media hype on the Ukraine war. He couldn't afford to show any ankle on that war. He couldn't afford to say, I'm going to do diplomacy. But now the midterms are over and the Democrats did fairly well, much better than expected. So we need diplomacy. I'm, Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, is the best diplomat in the government. Bill Burns should be having talks with Sergei Lavrov or someone in Moscow right now about stopping this stupid war in the heart of Europe. And at the same time, stopping all you're talking about. You know, if there's no war, there's no one to sell drones to or to sell missiles to. So that's the key here is to start talking. Jan Stoltenberg said yesterday, I believe it was, I, I wrote it down. Most wars in with negotiations, this is the director general of NATO. Most wars end with negotiations, but what happens at the negotiating table depends on what happens on the battlefield. Absolutely true. But the fact that he said most wars end in negotiation is a positive. We need to start that negotiations. We saw the rise of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, who was strongly opposed for any settlement with Iran. Uh, then we have Iran siding with Russia in the Ukraine conflict. Then we have the anti-war protest. And now Iran is uh, increasing its enrichment of uh, uh, nuclear um, uh, enrichment. So looking at all this configuration, do you think that the time window of the GCPOA has expired? Or do you see uh, somehow still a window of opportunity to uh, revive it? I'll tell you how I would re revive the JCPOA. I would wait until the women have won and deal with them. <laughs> That's how I would do it. I wouldn't do it beforehand. Um, and Bibi Netanyahu is as much in Putin's back pocket as anybody in the world. Uh, money, money, arms sales, and all of it goes along with it, intelligence exchanges and so forth. He's just as much working with Putin as anyone else in the world. So... And plus, look at what the last immigration numbers were out of Russia to Israel. We, we've got a whole increase, forty uh, percent or so, in Israel's population that came from into the Soviet Union to today. Russians. Um, it's a dominant portion of Israeli Jews now, which is really worrisome because they're really hardline conservative types, and they reinforce Netanyahu. I don't even think Netanyahu would have been able to be reelected without these Russians who have immigrated to Israel. 
Um, so you've got a complicated situation there, and you can rest assured that Netanyahu is going to play it like the genius he is for playing devious games. Um, and starting a war with Iran would be perfect for him, except now he doesn't know who he's going to be starting it with. Is he going to be starting it with these women who are in the streets? Or is he be going to starting it with the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps? Who knows? But I wouldn't mess with it right now. I would let this go. The way it's going looks fairly positive to me, except for all the deaths that the government is causing. Um, and these women are eventually going to win, I think. I, I think they're going to win. So it's it's a very difficult situation right now. But I wouldn't be negotiating any JCPOA with the current government. Let us now look at the war in Ukraine. I want to begin with the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline that took place in September of this year. Western nations, as well as the media, blame Russia for the attack, whereas the Russian state accused the UK Navy for doing it. According to your assessment, who would have the motives to conduct this attack as well as benefit from it? Well, I think it's rather absurd to think that Putin would have a motive to do it. Uh, just totally absurd. People have said to me, well, look, what he's doing, he's going to make the, the winter really difficult for NATO, and he's going to make it really difficult for Ukraine. So that's the reason he did it. All he had to do was turn the spigot off. That's all he had to do. He didn't have to go bomb his own pipeline. Um, the only people with the expertise to do that in the world are the United States of America. And as you in, insinuated, the United Kingdom could do it with our help. Um, that's a positive statement that I can't go any further on because I signed non-disclosure agreements. But I, I suspect we in the UK did it. When we interviewed you in the summers, you stated that Russia has emerged victorious in Ukraine. However, Ukraine's military has gained significant momentum since September in pushing Russia out of the north, east and southern parts of the country, reclaiming 54% of Russian-controlled territory. Strategic cities conquered include Izium, Lehman and recently Kherson. How do you assess the war at this stage? Do you think the tide is changing in favor of Ukraine? The Wehrmacht went from roughly the Ukrainian border to Stalingrad in a very short time and slaughtered and killed a whole lot of Russians en route. Some say that uh, the Russians lost over two million men and women. Um, and then, and then, they started beating the Wehrmacht at Stalingrad, surrounded Paulus's Sixth Army, and took about 100,000 German prisoners. And then they marched all the way to Berlin. Don't ever count the Russians out. They have far too great a strategic depth and far too great a strategic industry. Um, all we're seeing now is the war going to what is Russia's strength, making U Ukraine bleed and bleed badly and have a very difficult time with the oncoming winter. So this is by no means militarily over. And if it were allowed to go to a military end, despite NATO and Washington's help, Russia would win. We don't need that. We do not need that because it would be a pyrrhic victory for Russia and it would be a horrible defeat for Ukraine. We need to talk. Both sides need to eat a little crow, admit mistakes in private and secret. That's what diplomacy is all about. And then we need to come up with a solution that works. And both sides need to give a little bit. Um, that's what we need to do. This war needs to stop. We have bigger challenges in the world, much bigger challenges. 
Since we talked last time, the war in Ukraine has only been escalating. Russia is now targeting power and energy infrastructure in Ukraine. And recently, a missile hit Poland accidentally fired by Ukraine's air defenses, which almost triggered NATO's involvement. Now there's also talk about installing Patriot missile air defense systems uh, in Ukraine. Germany offered it to Poland, but Poland said, why don't you just give it to Ukraine? How precarious is the situation according to your analysis? And are we past the point of no return in terms of diplomacy? I don't think so. I, I think we've already started it. As I said before, I, I think you've probably got Bill Burns, the best diplomat in the U.S. government, right now talking with someone. I don't know who he's talking with, but I suspect he is. And I don't know where he's talking with them, but I suspect he's somewhere, probably somewhere in Europe, maybe Geneva, wherever. Um, and I, I, we need to go on. And I, I understand from my Russian colleagues, the ones who still talk to me and who are still in Moscow, that Putin has let it be known that uh, he's willing to do this and he's dispatched his emissary too. So let's just hope that's right, that this isn't just scuttlebutt and that we are talking right now. But to your point about Ukraine, it is going to be, get harder and harder and harder the longer we hold out, the longer we stop and don't, uh, or, or the longer we don't stop and go straight to negotiations. It's going to get tougher and it's going to be a really rough winter. And that's why I said earlier, a couple of months ago, and repeated it about a month ago, that I think NATO may fall apart after this winter. Um, NATO will go the way Germany goes. Uh, I remember Helmut Kohl when H.W. Bush and Jim Baker and Mikhail Gorbachev and others were talking, including my boss at the time, Colin Powell. And uh, Kohl was really skeptical that uh, Bush was willing, H.W. Bush was willing to allow Germany, once reuni reunification occurred, to stay in NATO because he saw that it would be a real threat to Moscow. And uh, I mean, coal was brought up in that period. That's one of the problems in Europe now. We, Powell said this one time back in 1989, he said to me, he said, Larry, Francois Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl and Maggie Thatcher and John Major, they're all going away. There will be no more people leading European countries who were born in the war, even if they were 12 years old or 13 years old in 1944, 45. There'll be no more of them. No more of them. And that's going to change everything. That's going to change the transatlantic relationship. You mark my words. And I think we may see the trauma right now. And this winter may be the, 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 the nadir of it, if you will, um, that uh, essentially breaks us up. Um, that's not good. Uh, the British are already, I think, a majority of them, probably 55 to 60 percent, really, really understanding they did wrong with Brexit. Uh, and they're trying to figure out how to back up Brexit. I don't know how you do that. But um, Europe is not taking care of its its house very well these days. Now, I'm a big one to say that because America isn't either. But Europe is a GDP, the equivalent of the United States. It's now, what, 740 million people throw the Russians in, 148 million, whatever, um, and and you've got a you've got an equal to the United States and China, and yet look at it. It can't get its political act together, and it's got a war in the very heart of it. We've got to stop this. We've got to stop this. Uh, Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, who's now become a politician, um, 
in the Greek Parliament says that there is nothing like a you uh, like a your independent European foreign policy that it's basically a joke uh, because uh, the the Europeans are just subservient to the United States. Do you share the same sentiments? Bingo. That's absolutely true. And what Norway and Finland and other countries being added to NATO really signifies is a last-ditch major effort by Washington to reestablish an ironclad hegemony over Europe. And it's going to fail. It's going to fail. EU is preparing another round of sanctions. Um, and we've seen uh, since they've implemented sanctions, not at the very beginning, but since September, that Russia has lost uh, uh, a lot of territory. Uh, do you think that the sanctions have been effective in curbing Russia, especially given how you've worked inside the state apparatus and you've seen uh, a lot of sanctions being drawn out over a lot of years? How do you assess the sanctions in this case and generally speaking? Generally speaking, I think sanctions more often than not backfire. They do not punish the people you want to punish, and they punish the people you don't want to punish, usually the average citizen. Whether it's Iraq or it's Russia or it's Syria or Venezuela, sanctions don't work. But we love them. We love them for two reasons, basically. One, they're easy to implement. They're almost impossible to take apart and to end. <laughs> but we don't seem to care about that. And second, they don't involve people dying in our sphere. It's like using drones. You know, we use drones because we kill people, but we don't put our own people in danger. Well, sanctions give Congress a great feeling. We're acting, we're acting, we're tough. But they're not hurting themselves in any way, fashion, or form, except indirectly. And that, that's another comment on sanctions, too. I don't think sanctions work, generally. Now, these specific sanctions with regard to Russia have been a little more tailored and a little more direct and a little more aimed than most, but they still don't do what they should do if we're really serious about things, and that is penalize all those Russians who have money in the United States. By and large, they don't do that because we'd be punishing our own banks, and our banks make millions off those fees and such. So, you know, sanctions are, in my view, sort of a joke. We are seeing that uh, in this conflict that a lot of actors are getting involved, international actors are getting involved. For example, I mentioned Iran supporting uh, Russia um, and the United States and the Western nations supporting Ukraine. Um, we saw the same thing play out during the Cold War. Do you think we are right now at the stage where we're, we were at the Cuban Missile Crisis? We are seeing uh, Vladimir Putin making nuclear threats. Um, how precarious is the situation? Is there a possibility for a small tactical nuclear warhead being used in this conflict? There's always that possibility, and I would guess right now, as some groups have said, like the Union of Concerned Scientists, were closer even than October 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis today to the possible use of a nuclear weapon. I don't necessarily agree with that. I might have a few weeks ago when Putin was making some remarks and I was hearing confirmation of those remarks from people in Moscow saying that he was beginning to look at this war as if it were existential, not just for him and his regime, but for Russia itself, which is not where you want to put somebody who has 6,000 nuclear warheads. Um, but I think 
in the interim period, the last six weeks in particular, things have gotten to the point where people are talking enough. Um, Secretary Austin, for example, at the Pentagon, Secretary of Defense, and his counterpart in Moscow are talking often enough. I, I think we've sort of tamped that down a little bit. I'd like to see us begin as soon as diplomacy has ended this war. I'd like to see us begin immediately with talks about nuclear weapons arms control again, because we destroyed it all and we need to get busy and we need to bring, bring all nine nuclear weapon states into it, including North Korea and Israel. Even if we have to drag them in kicking and screaming, we, we need to bring them into these arms control regimes. But I think we're, I don't think we're quite as in a, in quite a dangerous position as maybe we were six or seven weeks ago. I hope I'm right on that because nothing would be worse than starting to use nuclear weapons. That That is a road that all of our doctrine during the Cold War showed us would not stop. We're seeing a lot of nations uh, talking about entering NATO, for example, Scandinavian countries. Uh, some analysts predict that uh, when this war perhaps is over or stalemated, that Ukraine will be taken into NATO as well. This has been a long-standing concern that uh, Russians have voiced over decades, even uh, the former, uh, the current CIA director, William Burns, who was stationed in Moscow, warned that this is a very sensitive issue, I'm paraphrasing here, sensitive issue for Russia, and that this might uh, provoke a civil war and force Russia's hand to intervene. This, is, this document was released by WikiLeaks. Um, how do you assess NATO's future? Do you think it will keep on expanding or will at some point uh, uh, the powers that may be realize that we need to build a different sort of a security architecture and stop at some point? How do you assess this going forward? Well, the first guarantee that whomever does the negotiations for the United States with Moscow over Ukraine should be that Ukraine will never be a member of NATO, period. Um, that takes care of that part of it. The second part of it, the bigger part of your question, the wider part, is NATO should not expand any further. NATO has already made itself untenable, made itself unexecutable, really. And I, I use the uh, analogy, metaphor, the story, whatever. Um, I, I actually did this in the state of Iowa. Um, this is way back when we were talking about, my president was talking about Georgia being a member of NATO. The first thing the Iowa farmer looked at me and said was, where is Georgia? Isn't that down there where Atlanta is? I said, no, we're talking about the Georgia that's uh, sort of in Europe. <laughs> He said, Asia, Europe, whatever, take your pick. You know, I was looking the other day at maps. I looked at six maps from Rand McNally to Britannica, and every one of them was different defining Asia and Europe. Some countries are in Europe, some countries are in Asia, and so forth. I don't know what they are anymore. Um, but he looked at me and he said, oh, really? You mean over there near Turkey? I said, yeah, you're in the neighborhood. And we did what? And he said, uh, no way. No way would I support that. Doesn't that treaty have this organization deal where, you know, we guarantee our nuclear umbrella to them? Yes, it does. It has something called Article 5, which is simply stated, says an attack on one is an attack on all. So you would go to nuclear war over Georgia. The hell I would, he said. <laughs> That's what most Americans would say if they were told what was going on and, and knew how to understand what was going on. Um, no, it's untenable. 
We have too many countries in NATO. We're, we're diluting the effectiveness of the alliance and we're doing damage to the transatlantic relationship. And you'll see that happen. You'll see that manifest itself big time, I think, come the spring. There are reports that when Vladimir Putin came to power, that he was open uh, to a common security architecture that should would have replaced NATO. Uh, I think early 2000s, uh, Vladimir Putin also held a speech in German at the German Bundestag. Um, Do you think Russia made an effort uh, in the beginning to get integrated with the West uh, to become part of Europe geographically? They are part of Europe, but in the political sense, uh, there was attempts, at least uh, according to some reports, that Russia tried. Um, on the other hand, some people say that uh, it wasn't the Western nations that were ready to integrate him, but it was Russians play on the geo geopolitical level, uh, its so-called uh, terrorist activities, its war in Chechnya, um, its still dreams of expanding Russia that prevented uh, Europe from um, uh, integrating Russia into its sphere, uh, political sphere. So how do you assess that? Who is at fault here? Was it the West not open to integrating uh, Russia or was it Russia's actions that hindered Russian integration? Well, let me say, first of all, that the war in Chechnya was um, Russia was a manifestation of Russia's really abiding fear of its southern terrorist, if you will, the, the Muslims that they that they envisioned coming up in hordes from the south, especially when the Soviet Union fell apart and they lost all those protective states down there, uh, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and so forth. Um, so that's. As brutal as that war was, and it was brutal, there's no question about that, that's kind of the way Russia does that sort of thing. Um, they did that in Afghanistan, too, um, and it didn't work. That was really hypocrisy, though, on our part to describe that in the way we did and to talk about it the way we did, because we, are, after all, are the country in the world that had a president initiate, carry out, execute and bless torture, a war crime. Um, we tortured lots of people too. It was a war crime, clearly a war crime. No one's been punished. So we're not much to talk about what Russia did. At the same time, what you ask about in general, I think was favorable on the Russian side all the way up to Clinton's bombing of really Belgrade and environs for 78 straight days. And I think at that point in time, the Russian leadership, all of it essentially said, these Americans cannot be dealt with. They cannot be dealt with. You even have after that a couple of, uh, a couple of times where Putin suggests other ways to get out of this mess and we just totally ignore him. Or we do something even worse than what we did as we weren't ignoring him. Yeltsin, was drunk half the time, but he was serious about what H.W. Bush had suggested to Gorbachev, that Russia would have observer status in NATO. It would have possibility for real status as a member, both politically and militarily, that this was a time of uh, euphoria, more or less, on both sides about the Russians coming into Europe and coming in as peaceful, democratic, uh, additions, if you will. 
And I think we did as much, Washington did as much to foul that water as Russia ever did. Now, there's blame on both sides, but I put the biggest blame on our side and to a certain extent, Paris, Berlin and London's side, because they never seemed. And this has happened before with Russia trying to come into Europe more forthrightly. They never seem really to want them. They never seemed to be willing to welcome them. And so they were constantly putting obstacles in the way and generating things like the Kosovo War, which was probably the biggest one of all, um, to keep them from uh, feeling comfortable in doing that. So I put the, the, the weight of the blame on the West and particularly Washington and London. Do you think that Washington has a deliberate policy to divide or to ensure that no integration between Russia and Europe takes place um, and is now using the Ukraine war to further that, um, to make that uh, integration impossible? I wouldn't argue with that too much. Um, I said before, we're trying to reestablish our hegemony even more forcefully than in the past over Europe. And uh, NATO gives us the tool to do that. And Russia is the one threat to that. And so what you just said is probably true. So my last question, we've talked about Iran, North Korea, Ukraine, and there's so many other topics like Taiwan. Um, and it seems to me that it's pretty pessimistic, the outlook. Can you summarize the state of the U.S. empire, even if I can call that, and whether you think there's any room of hope and optimism left? Well, it is an empire. There's no question about it. Um, some of my students at William Mary used to say, oh, it's a commercial empire. It's not an empire of aggrandizement. And I would look at them and say, are you sure? Are you sure the rest of the world has something like 75, maybe 80 bases? That includes Russia and China in the world, outposts, military outposts. We have 750 plus. That's not an empire of aggrandizement? Come on, give me a break here. It's a modern form of aggrandizement, but it is aggrandizement. With all of those bases flow our economy. McDonald's, Starbucks, you name it, with our bases flow our economy. And of course, our embassies and our economic officers in our embassies are part of that too. So we're an empire. Yes, we're a commercial empire, but we're also an empire of power. Maybe that's a better term than aggrandizement. Um, and we are losing our power. Um, various reasons. We have attenuated our power majorly by having a state-sponsored torture program because part of our power was our philosophy. Even though we didn't live up to it that often, people in Iran, for example, still look to the United States for that idea of humanitarianism, human rights, human dignity, democracy, and so forth. And, you know, why in Iran? Well, they do, because they saw what we did as opposed to the Soviets and the British to their country. And, you know, we weren't the offenders like the British and the Russians were. So there, there was a lot of hope for the United States if it lived up to its example, uh, if, it, if it set that example in the world for a long time. But I think we've tainted that now. And that was a major form of our power. Our reputation was a major form of our power. And now people just look at us as another brute, another brute. Look at the polls in Pakistan. Look at the polls in Egypt. Look at the polls in South Korea amongst people under 40. They don't favor the United States. 
um, South Korea is an ally, a signatory ally, and yet people under 40 in Korea by a majority don't think the United States is conducive to their future prosperity and safety. Um, Pakistan was even worse until uh, the flooding. You may have seen recently uh, the Pakistanis were saying, not India, not the United States, Climate change is the number one threat for us. We're inundated here. It has to be. Um, I had a Pakistani general tell me that. This is this has kicked India off the map. We now realize that the climate change problem is bigger than India. Um, so I think we are, uh, I think our days are numbered. We won't disappear. We won't disappear 3,000 miles from Atlantic to Pacific. Uh, 1,700 from Canadian border to the Mexican border. We're not going to disappear. We have too many natural resources and too many uh, gifts of God, if you will, that other countries don't have. But we're not going to be the hegemonic power that we are now much longer. Lawrence Wilkerson, former U.S. Army colonel and defense analyst, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Zane. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram and to donate so we can continue to produce independent and non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host, Zan Raza. See you guys next time.